0: Today is a start of finding peace with, and today the theme is anxiety. Um, you know, I don't want to give anybody anxiety, but if, if you, if that's an issue for you, could you raise your hand? You struggle with anxiety, and you know, be honest, look at this number of hands, and how many of the rest of you are lying, right? <laughs> yeah, you're lying. There's different levels of anxiety. Some of us have need to have uh, medication for it, I think that healthcare and uh, mental health and uh, and counseling; Those are all gifts of God, and I want to put that out there at the very beginning. I hope this doesn't come across as trite or I don't want to gloss over it. That's a serious issue for many people. So I'm going to be addressing some of the spiritual aspects of, of uh, anxiety. You know, I once saw a sign on the side of the road that said, Never in the history of being told to calm down has anyone ever calmed down, right? When you're mad, just calm down, and then you don't calm down. And people say, don't be so anxious, right? Never in the history of being anxious has anybody stopped being anxious when you were told to stop being anxious and then you got more anxious. If only it was that simple. Why is it at 3 a.m. is when you wake up and you're gripped with the what if game? Did I leave the garage door open? Someone might get in. Did I leave the front door unlocked? Someone might get in. You play the game. But so many of us though, we pay to be scared. We pay to feel anxious. I do not, I do not do the horror movie thing. Uh, Maybe when I was a kid I did, but I'm done with all that stuff. I mean, I I don't remember when Jaws came out. I wasn't alive yet, but a few years in my childhood, I watched Jaws. I think I was like four or something like that. Jaws was rated PG, you remember that? Movie standards have really changed over the years. Uh, It was rated PG, people in the water, anxious, oh no, who's going to get bitten by the shark? Steven Spielberg said he knew it was going to be a hit. When he was at the premiere, he couldn't even watch the movie in the theater, so he waited in the lobby. He said a man walked out into the lobby, took a knee, vomited on the floor, stood up, and went back into the theater. And Spielberg said, it's a hit! People pay to be... Anxious, almost as an escape, really. Some people we have some people have phobias. Some of these phobias are real. I've never met people with some phobias, but some people have legitimate phobias. Here's other ones I'm not quite so sure about. Uh, one is pagona phobia. That's a fear of beards. So I'm sorry if I'm freaking you out right now. Santa Claus isn't really your thing. I'll try to get this one right the first shot. Hippopotam monstrosis phobia. I think I got it right. It's fear of long words. Don't ever go to Wales or Germany and <laughs> look at street signs. Xanthophobia is fear of the color yellow. So that's pretty specific. Mustard might freak you out. Nomophobia is fear of being without your mobile phone. That's legit. I know that one. I, well, I've met people, not me, but they're serious. That's a serious... Angst, I know teenagers, they get anxious when they don't have their phone, right? Well, then we get scared, we get anxious. And that, the last one, arachibutyrophobia is fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. So if you eat with white bread, that's going to happen, so just get ready. So th- those might be some anxiety and fears people have. Now, what we're addressing today could be uh, ir- irrational fear that we don't know, fears of uncertainty, fears of the unknown, uh, the future, where will I work? Will I have a career? Maybe you're a young adult, where, where, what's my life gonna look like? Uh, I remember when I was a little kid and I would be with adults and I would think, how do you make money? Like, how does that work? Like, I didn't even understand. You're anxious about the future. When you're young, you worry about uh, getting old, older. And then when you're, when you're older, you worry about getting really old. And, and aging phones drive up our anxiety i think social media is a big part of that uh, of our anxiety problem i mean if social media didn't exist would we be happier and they, the the creators of facebook have admitted in public they designed it to be addictive the little notifications and ooh, you know that they constantly have it there a carrot on a stick on a string i saw a uh, a meme the other day and I was a little boy asking his dad, dad, what was life like in the 1980s? So I took away his phone and turned off the internet. That's what life was like in the 1980s. You know, I, some of us might need a detox. We might need a Sabbath from our phones. That could lower our anxiety levels, I mean, really. I took a group of kids on a mission trip one time to a camp and it was near Morganton and we just happened to be in this little pocket where there's no cell phone service. So when we were there, we were like, just put your phones away because they're worthless. You don't, they're not going to work out here. And by the end of the week, all these teenagers were like, man, I'm so glad. It doesn't work. Like, It makes me happier that like, they saw the difference. you know They really appreciated not having it for a little while. Because millennials, Generation Z, might be the most stressed out generation ever, the most ang- full of anxiety. Phones are certainly part of that. I mean, when the 1980s, like I said, The first cell phone a friend of mine had, it was called The Brick. You guys remember that? It came in a briefcase. You got like eight minutes a month. You probably got a brain tumor real quick. Uh, Yeah, called The Brick. So in many ways, though, we might be the most connected generation, but also yet the loneliest. Something to think about. According to the data from the National Institute on Mental Health, this is from 2017, 38% 38% of girls aged 13 to 17, almost 30% of boys have an anxiety disorder. So that is about 30% of teens. That was four years ago. Um, college campuses, anxiety has eclipsed depression. The, many times they're connected, but has eclipsed that is the most common mental health concern. Um, the, the web searches, according to Google, involving the term uh, anxiety have doubled over the past seven years. And then this thing called COVID happened. And if we weren't already anxious, then this unseen virus is tipping the scales even further. So I'm going to have three words that I'm going to discuss today about anxiety. Again, there's a lot more you could say about this, um, but I think these three things might may be helpful. The first is, well, this word, weather it together and watch. The first is word. It's God's word. is a great answer to anxiety, what we may feel when it grips us. And the reason it's a good answer to our anxiety is because we need certainty in our lives. We need to know that something is solid, that we can hold on to it. Many things about postmodern culture are problematic, but one is this almost suspicion of certainty. When, someone, when there's any kind of certain truth or overarching meta narrative or mor- morality or ethic, people immediately go, well, I don't know about that. And I would debate that that is a biggest problem people have is that we're afraid of certainty. But God's word gives us certainty that we can have the certain promises of our Father in heaven when you're gripped with uncertainty. That's exactly what you need in those moments, something that you can hold on to. Now, my daughter is six years old. She asked us to leave the light on in the hallway. And uh, so I have to close the door because the light's literally going to be in my face all night. So... But she wants us to leave the light on. Even though we may assure her with our words, we may comfort her as best we can, the light is what she needs the most. It comforts her and gives her reassurance, and it helps her go to sleep. See, when you feel full of anxiety and and fear, it causes you to look inward and look downward, to feel as if you're trapped in a place of darkness, and and that you're the only one that feels that way, right? And that's just not true. A lot of people feel maybe the way you feel. The light of God's word can help us look upward and outward and just have hope in something certain beyond ourselves. Jesus would teach on this in Matthew chapter 7 about that his teaching is like a foundation for your life. Look at these words starting in verse 24. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise like a person who built a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. You ever see how they build houses at the beach? They have these big water cannons and they blast through all the, until they get down to to what? The rock. They put all the, you know, the pylons and stuff, you have to go down to the bedrock. To have your house built upon it he says when the rains and floods come he didn't say if when they come and the winds beat against that house it will collapse with a mighty crash so he's really uh, really asking in, in what truth are you resting in what word is directing your life an overarching question i'm going to be asking for the next few weeks that i've asked before is this do you believe that God loves you as much as he loves his son? Do you believe that God loves you as much as he loves Jesus? Because a lot of times people think, well that's Jesus. He loves Jesus more than me. And that's just not true. God loves everybody as much as he loves his son. You have to change your mindset about how God looks at you. Do you believe that God's promises, his word, are where your hope is found? It is the foundation for your life. Thomas Merton said, your life, it's shaped by the end you live for. You are made in the image of what you desire. And I would say what you build your life upon. If you desire constant control, to constantly have the answer of what's coming, to to be anxious about that, which is impossible, you will live an anxious life. To somehow know the future, if you're focused on uncertain things, uncertain outcomes all the time, you'll be full of uncertain thoughts. But if you build your life upon his word, upon the rock, you will grow more into his image. It won't be overnight. It takes time for God to work that in your heart and in your soul. And this is his promise of certainty. Now you could be hearing all of that and go, that sounds really nice. But how in the world could I trust a God that I cannot see and find peace? How could this be? Well, for one, I would say that it's the unseen things in life that give our lives the most value. We trust unseen things all the time. We, just, we take it for granted. But things like love, hope, joy, humor, beauty, all these different things that we can't articulate or put into a bottle, those are the things that give our lives meaning. And, of course, faith. So we're actually trusting unseen things every single day of our lives, whether you're religious or not. So the natural state of this world is chaos, It is not a safe place. It has never been a safe place. It's a place where things die. There is suffering. And yet we intrinsically know these things should not be, right? We know that's off, something's wrong. It's not supposed to be that way. In order to find peace here on earth then, it must come from an external source. It must come from somewhere outside of this world. And that's precisely what God's word does for us. It comes from someone and somewhere who is not subject to this world, who is not subject to sin and death. God is not anxious, no. First Corinthians tells us that God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. In Numbers chapter 11, God gives a word to Moses, beyond this world, to give Moses some semblance of peace. If you're feeling like you're a messed up person today, you're in good company because the Bible is full of messed up people. Okay, Moses killed a guy, and he's full of anxiety. He's in charge of three million people in the middle of the desert. King David killed somebody. He's, he killed someone's husband. Uh, even going to church history, someone like Martin Luther, he was wracked with depression most of his life. It, you know, we don't have to have it all together. God takes us as we are, and he gives us his word to help us. And look at what happens with Moses in, in Numbers chapter 11. This is kind of hilarious actually. <laughs> it wasn't hilarious to Moses at the time. Moses heard all the families, all the people of Israel, they've left Exodus, they left Egypt. The Exodus has happened. They're trying to get to the promised land. And what are the people doing? They're whining. They're whining. They're standing in the doorway of their tents whining, and the Lord became extremely angry. Moses was also very aggravated. And Moses said to the Lord, "Why are you treating me, your servant, so harshly? Have mercy on me. What did I do to deserve the burden?" Of all these people, did I give birth to them? Moses is getting cheeky here. Did I bring them into the world? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms like a mother carries a nursing baby? How can I carry them into the land you swore to give their ancestors? A legitimate concern, serious anxiety in Moses right now. Where am I supposed to get meat for all these people? He would eventually send quail, which is amazing, God would. They keep whining to me saying, give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. The load is far too heavy. If this is how you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me. See? You're in good company, okay? Do me a favor and spare me this misery. But look what the Lord says to him. Gather before me 70 men who are recognized as elders and leaders of Israel. Bring them to the tabernacle to stand there with you. I will come down and talk to you there. So not only is... God giving him a word, God says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to come and be with you right now. I will take some of the spirit that is upon you, and I will put the spirit upon them also. They will bear the burden of the people along with you, so you will not have to carry it alone. The word helps us, and he also reminds us we're, we're, you're not called to be a solo act. We weather it together. Again, when we feel anxiety, it makes us look inward and cut ourselves off from people and, and not be open to knowing and being known. But that's where healing begins, is when you're in connection and in relationship with people, other Christians, and they can speak into your life, right? They can encourage you. They can love you. But you have to open yourself up to it. So we weather it together. What I love about that passage is God does not condemn Moses in his anxiety, but he says to him, You're trying to do it all by yourself. Weather the storm with some of your trusted people around you. I'm going to encircle them around you. You're going to get through this together. Like the Jack Johnson song, it's always better when we're together. And he's right about that. The church is an organism. We're not a business. We're called to live in circles, not in rows. To not look at the back of people's heads every Sunday but to know and to be known and to bear one another's burdens. You, you're not called to live life alone. You're not yourself by yourself. I've always hated that cliche, uh, God won't give you more than you can handle, right? Because clearly here, God gives Moses more than he can handle, right? But what he's, he clearly sent more than Moses can handle alone. But together, they could do it. They could make it. Another is person that was attempting to do it all by himself was Peter in Matthew chapter 14. And he feels anxiety in this passage. Check this out. Jesus comes to them in the middle of the night, walking on the water, and scares them. They think he's a ghost. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. And in their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. I am here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you, walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the son of God, they exclaimed. So Peter is scared. He thinks it's a ghost, but he knows it's the Lord. His anxiety level goes down. But then he, being Peter, decides, I can do this. This is plausible for me to walk on water. And so he does. He did it. He walked on water for a little while, in the midst of a storm, by the way. It's not like calm, serene day on the lake. And then he begins to sink. He thinks he's going to die. And and even Jesus says, you had so little faith. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't let him go. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't make him feel stupid. He's patient with him. Here's the thing. Jesus knows the worst about you and me. And yet Jesus is the one who loves you the most. Let that sink in. He knows the worst about us, and he doesn't disown us. No. No. He pulls us back into the boat with our friends to weather it together. And then third is watch. Watch your gauges. When I was a senior in college, the, I was leading a small group of guys. And one of the guys in my group was a freshman. And one day he was like, hey, do you want to go uh, fly a plane with me? And I was, I was like, are you a pilot? He said, yeah. I'm, he's 18 years old. He has a pilot's license. And I said, okay, Sure. You know, live young, uh, die young, leave it a nice-looking corpse, whatever that sh- saying is. Why not? Uh, so he rented a three-person Cessna at the Asheville Airport, and we got on the plane and uh, flew over the mountains and the Biltmore House, and it was just incredible. And, and at one point, I look at the, if you've ever been in those—even a little plane, there's lots of dials and buttons and lights, and I don't know what any of them mean. And at one point, he lets go of the controls and says, all right, it's your plane, feel free to fly it, you know, and not talk about being gripped with anxiety, you know, <laughs> like, we're all going to die now. Um, and I did it a little bit, I and mean, you could feel the wind pushing this thing around. But I was looking at those gauges, and he said, yeah, that's your altimeter, we tell the altitude, this is the, you know, your compass, here's, the, here's how you know you're with your, the your horizon line, you know, all these gauges are so important, and if they malfunction or have problems, you're, you have a problem. You know, I was watching a show about the uh, Bermuda Triangle. I really enjoy this sort of stuff. And this really interesting because uh, for whatever reason, there is proof that people's gauges just go crazy. Their compasses spin. And that's part of the problem maybe when there's different crashes and stuff out in that part of the ocean. But I never forget when we were flying that plane that day. He said, you know, if your gauges are off, you're going to crash. In the same way, you and I, we know our gauges better than anybody else. You know your limits and your capabilities. You know what you can go above or below. And listen to those. Honor that. And ask God to heal those areas of your life where the gauges have just been way off. I read a story about a a megachurch pastor... Uh, who had his day blocked out in 15 minute increments and he was super type A and he's like got it all, this huge church, big responsibilities. He said one day he sat down on his desk and he started to go to work and he just started crying. He didn't know why. He just broke down. And he wrote, I realized that, that my emotional gauge, I wasn't paying attention to it. It was just like bottomed out. And that's bad for men especially. We really don't. We really need to be aware of that. It's okay, guys to be aware of your feelings. But he's like, I had to be aware of that. I wasn't keeping track in that. I thought I was doing great. I was like knocking it out. I was cranking out. I was, my, my life was my work. My work is my life. Be careful with that identity too. And he, he said, I had to come back to, to, to start because we live in a culture of activity. Even when you hear a message like this, you could say, well, what 10 steps do I need to do to cure all this? And then your anxiety goes up. I think God just sometimes wants us just to rest. To know sometimes it's okay to do nothing. And just be still. To give God time to do what he wants to do in your life. To be still. I've heard this practice, Bill Bright used to teach on this, about spiritual breathing. He'd say... When, I, when I'm praying, I'm visualizing that I'm breathing in the Holy Spirit and I'm breathing out whatever it is. My fear, my anxiety, my problems. I'm breathing in His presence and I'm breathing out. I've always loved that. It's always stuck with me. I still practice that. I still remember that. Just to breathe out. Especially the things that are outside of your control. The uncertain things that you can't fix or handle. Breathe out of those things and breathe in a bit more of maybe what God have to say because what if your identity was not so much found in your activity but your identity was more and more found in your activity with God we're going to be providing a book next week it's called Centering Prayer by Dr. Brian Russell who is a professor at Asbury Seminary and uh, it's a beautiful book it's just coming out this week and we're going to be providing that and you can come purchase that And then in a few weeks we're going to provide a zoom call with him that you can jump in on and just hear what he has to say about centering prayer. Because I think it's going to come a lot in line with what we hear about with finding peace. That's that's where we need to come back to is that place of prayer. Because what I've come to determine is that in those moments of stillness, in those moments of being centered on God, in those moments of choosing to slow down, to be still, I have to receive God's grace receive in the areas of my life that are broken that I messed up that I went way over the line and Paul Tillich he's a theologian he's not a Methodist one but this definition of grace is really good he says accept the fact that you were unconditionally accepted accept the fact that God unconditionally accepts you as you are and yeah you may think I'm not as I need to be and you're not None of us are. God loves you as you are, but not enough, he loves you too much to leave you as you are. But to God, right now, in this moment, you are enough. You are enough. Do you believe that God loves you as much as he loves his son? Everybody's messy, everybody's complicated. I think he wants us just to breathe in his peace and his presence today. Because when the Lord is near, There's always just a deep stillness that he brings. So I'm going to pray for us, and I invite you to pray, and I invite you to breathe out of whatever it is and breathe in a bit more of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are our refuge and our strength. You are always ready to help in times of trouble. We will not fear when earthquakes come when the oceans roar, when the mountains tremble, you will show us the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. God, we breathe out of any anxiety or worry or fear we have in this place today. We recenter our scattered senses on you God, I pray you give everybody here the strength to control what they can control and to release what they cannot to accept the fact that they are unconditionally accepted. Nothing will change that. Certainty. The rock on which we can build our lives. Fill us and lead us, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray